Mike, thanks for coming back to the show. How you doing today? Hey, it's great. It's it's great to be here. I, I love talking with you, Cole. <laughs> that means a lot. That means a lot coming from you. Um, for folks that don't know who you are and why that would mean a lot to me, uh, could you introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit about your past in Illinois cannabis? I, I have no idea why it would mean a lot to you, but uh, I am uh, the uh, one-time editor of a publication called Grown In, um, which was a cannabis industry news publication. Uh, and before that, I've been a reporter in a lot of other things, and, and I've uh, also worked in politics in a lot of different ways in Illinois and Washington and and worked in the news business uh, generally, not just as a reporter. Um, so yeah, here I am. Yeah, and last time I, uh, I'll answer you why that why you are so important in my mind, but last time uh, we talked, I also learned that you um, were privy to some of the nation's most critical secrets, uh, the nuclear stuff, or you were at the Department of Energy, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's the secrets. I mean, uh, it's not I'm like honestly just like trying to make you laugh. Or full of secrets <laughs> that you would go through. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I. I talked to a lot of people that knew a lot of things about that. And, um, you know, working at the U.S. Department of Energy was a fantastic experience and, and uh, a fascinating place. A lot of people don't know that the Department of Energy is really two different departments. One is the part that actually does energy, which is where I spent most of my time. And the other part is the part that manages the nuclear weapons uh, and not only manages them, but also produces them and um, pays for scientists to devise them. Um, like one of the things that I, I loved is, is that Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico uh, actually has a PhD program for um, nuclear weapons. But the thing is, is that when you make your PhD thesis in this program, it's classified. <laughs> so only like six or seven different scientists see it and then it, it's gone forever. And, and, you know, you do it so that you can then become somebody who works on nuclear weaponry, which is a, a crazy, insane, fascinating thing to me. Uh, and, and all this stuff, by the way, that, that you've been hearing about the fusion project at Lawrence Livermore labs that started when I was at department of energy. So, you know, it's been going on for like 25 years. And I remember them talking about building the national ignition facility fascinating. I mean, the idea that you have these hundreds of lasers all pointed at one diamond just blows my mind. Uh, well, and we have to, since you just brought it up, can you give us a just a quick synopsis of the the breakthrough that you just referred to uh, with regard yeah, to energy? Uh, the, the National Ignition Facility um, at Lawrence Livermore Labs in, uh, in Berkeley, California, uh, they just announced that they managed to actually have a fusion reaction where the amount of energy that went in to a reaction was less than the amount of energy that went out. And the way that it works is that they literally have hundreds of lasers that all focus on a single diamond spot. And inside that diamond are hydrogen atoms. And they got those hydrogen atoms to fuse. So that is the fusion part. And when there is fusion, they then have a reaction that throws off energy. And the, the amount of energy was something like 
megajoules that went out, which is about the amount of a stick and a half of dynamite. Um, so, you know, you think stick and a half of dynamite. Oh, no, that's a lot. It, it's a lot, but in terms of energy terms, it's it's probably, a, you know, enough that you could turn on the lights in about a thousand homes, which is not a lot, um, you know, in the scheme of things. And, and what you need to be able to do is have it happen continuously so the lights are on all the time. Um, so anyway, this is, I, I love that stuff. It's fascinating. Um, you know, just, uh, it's another thing that's up there. And, and just, uh, so that I understand, am I correct in saying that the breakthrough was that we got more energy out than what we yeah. put in? Yeah. More energy out than, so the amount of energy that went in was like 2.5 megajoules and the amount of energy that went out was like, don't quote me on the numbers, like 3.2. Um, so this has just, nothing to do with cannabis. No, it, it doesn't. But you never know what you're going to talk about on the Chillinoy podcast. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just happy that I actually put two and two together there because that that's the breakthrough that we're getting more out than what we put in. And am that's I correct right. in saying that if we learn how to control that, well, that could be a really good thing for us as a yeah. civilization. <laughs> if, we, if we could do it repeatedly. Yeah. The, I mean, basically the way the sun works is fusion. And that's why the energy comes out for the sun is that there's a constant fusion reaction. But the thing about the sun is, is that inside the sun, it's very, very, very high pressure and very, very high temperature. So, you know, that's a different circumstance than we have on planet earth. And so with the national uh, ignition facility, they were pointing all these lasers at this spot to attempt to make a tiny, tiny space that has, uh, you know, a, a scenario that's like the core of the sun. So really cool, really so cool. And there's places like that all over the place. I've been able to go to Argonne National Laboratory here in Illinois, uh, and also the Fermi Lab when they were still running the accelerator in Illinois. Just crazy, amazing places with just people whose brains are just, you know, like you can warm your hands by their brains. They're just so smart. It's yeah. really, really cool. Um, and just a lot of people don't know how amazing and awesome the U.S. Department of Energy is. It's, it's basically almost all of the major basic science discoveries come from the U.S. Department of Energy, all of them in the United States and you know mostly the world. But Europe has a little bit of that now and China's sort of getting there. But it's really, really the Department of Energy finance stuff. Even a lot of the funding for the National Institutes of Health, uh, you know, so for instance, the whole gene sequencing project that that was done about 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That was all paid for by the Department of Energy. Um, you know, so much amazing stuff that comes out of there. So we should give lots and lots of money to the Department of Energy. They do amazing things. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, maybe sometime we'll just, it sounds like you've got a lot to say about that. Maybe sometime we should just sit down and talk about the Department <laughs> of Energy. It. It's really cool. It's really well, cool. so anyways, back to why you're so big in my mind. I didn't okay. forget that. I wanted to tell you that. And I think you're big in other people's minds is you did excellent reporting. So that's, I think for everybody while you're, you know, in the forefront of their mind when it comes to Illinois cannabis, but for me, you're, you mean so much to me because not only did you do excellent reporting, but you would come on my show and help me break it down because it's oh. hard to keep up with, you know? So it is. there's a lot going on all the time, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And even if I, even as I look back at your reporting, cause I'm doing a, a research and analysis project right now where I break down all of the stories in the history of Illinois cannabis and try to analyze it and kind of string it together, you know, mm -hmm. into a single fluid story. 
And even as I look back at your reporting now, what happened in Illinois cannabis and what continues to happen is just so confusing. And I think you even said in a, in a podcast we did in the past that it's just weird in Illinois, the way, (laughs) the way the state does things is weird. Illinois has a, has a difficult system. You know, the, um, the, the way that cannabis is managed in Illinois is very, very heavily reliant on the legislature, and that's how the legislature set it up. So the administration doesn't have a lot of leeway in terms of making changes. Um, you know, well, at least it's not Missouri, where almost all of the laws have been encoded into the Constitution um, as a result of the two referendums that they have. So in Missouri, there's almost nothing you can do, nothing anybody can do unless you pass another referendum, which is, you know, an enormous amount of work. I don't know how they're going to handle it. Um, And I think that's a little bit of what Governor Parsons was saying when he said months ago that the whole thing is a mess. Uh, I think that's what he called it. And um, then very quickly backed off and didn't say anything else about their cannabis referendum, but it was pretty clear that he was talking about the fact that it's all going to be based in a constitutional amendment, which is going to make it very hard for them to make any changes. In Illinois, um, you know, cannabis, as you know, coal is really complicated. And there's a lot of little details to make a huge difference for a large group of people. And you have to be able to understand those little details in order to be able to, you know, make a little change. Um, and, um, you know, the legislature, they've got a lot of other things going on. Legislatures aren't well known for cutting with a scalpel. They're known for meat cleaver kind of responses. And um, so here we are, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I was struck by as I turned back the page, you know, looking back to Governor Quinn's days was that, it, you know, it's not exactly the same but it seemed like the licensing rollout was pretty goddamn similar. And by that, I mean, behind closed doors, <laughs> um, you know, where nobody really knows what's going on. Um, and then when the results did come out, it was found that many people um, had connections. Well, so for the first license rollout, I think there was one connection to the Quinn administration, a former staffer, um, mm-hmm. But but like with the initial rollout of adult use cannabis, we see uh, other connections and it just seems like the same thing is happening again and again. Do you do you share that view? Like, do you do you see the similarities that I'm drawing between the the rollouts? Well, I, I guess think, I think the Pritzker administration has really tried very, very, very hard to bring transparency. Um, they've had a lot of things working against them. Um, I think the first is that um, they did not anticipate how complicated the application process was going to be. And they were really, really sorely staffed in terms of the number of people working for them. I mean, the the number of people working on cannabis in Illinois in state government, I think is definitely under 50 and maybe under 30 terms of the number of people working on it and so you know you compare new jersey i think has um 100 
and um, Michigan has well over 200 people working on their regulatory aspects. So, you know, I think Illinois really, really, really underestimated how hard this was going to be. And so there were a lot of kind of boneheaded mistakes that were made because there just you know, weren't enough people looking at things and not enough experienced and knowledgeable people to do stuff. Um, I think the, the other part is that, you know, when you have a, a system that is not as well considered and thought through as Illinois, um, you get people who know how to game the system and, you know, that I think that's a lot of what happened. I mean, there are a lot of the applicants knew how to pay close attention and what sort of things you need to do in order to be able to win a license and get a license. And I think that there was a lot of that. I, I don't really, I don't really fall into the camp that there was a conspiracy and that there was insider stuff that was going on. I, I just don't, you know, I've spent a lot of time inside and out of government at all levels and, and, consistently the Occam's razor is, is that it has always has more to do with um, somebody asleep at the switch, you know, rather than actual corruption. I've, I've seen places that have real corruption and, and I've seen what that looks like. And, and I just don't see it here. I, you know, I think, I think it's really been a circumstance where Illinois cannabis program is just way, way, way understaffed. And, and there's been almost no appetite whatsoever in Illinois government in order to pay for the kind of staffing and um, intelligence, not, not intelligence, but kind of um, knowledge base that's necessary to really well-regulate the industry. For sure. And I think, you know, so aside, I, I tend to agree with you really, um, you know, we've had people on the past that there have, you know, people have made allegations against them like, oh, you were really close to the process and you want a license. What's going on there? You know, they asked that question, but their response when they'd come on my show is, of course we did. If you helped write the test, don't you think you'd know the answers? So right. in other words, it's not really corruption. It's just that they knew the answers that. Right. 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 So. So I think that's definitely important to point out. I'm not trying to say that that anything like that necessarily happened. Um, but one of the main kind of debates uh, that, that has transpired throughout this, and if you've noticed, I, I even went back to my interviews and I would always frame the questions of like, what are your thoughts on this? I'm not necessarily asking your opinion on it because I never knew as a reporter how you felt about people asking their opinions. Today, I'm asking your opinion. Um, okay. <laughs> on open Great. licensing versus limited licensing or more open licensing, however you want to term it. J.B. Pritzker um, at, I believe it was the Green Rose. I don't know. There was, or no, I think it was Ivy Hall. Anyways, he gave a speech saying that there are some people out there that will say that, you know, just open up the market and and then we'll see more social equity happen. He said, first of all, we're seeing social equity happening through the expungement process and everything else, which I acknowledge that's good stuff, social equity. Um, but he addressed the main point here, which I'd love to hear your take on. He said, if we just issued a bunch of licenses 
we would edge people out of the market and thus not allow equity to happen. He said, by limiting the licenses, and I'm going off the top of my head right now, by limiting the licenses, you will allow equity to happen. And so I, what I'm asking you today is, in your opinion, is, is equity, is the definition of equity, does that mean that you should be able to make a bunch of money off of like a, a piece of paper or is the lim or is like the definition of equity allowing all people to participate in this new and burgeoning industry while also ending all policies that caused this situation in the first place? I know that was a long question. All right. Well, before I give you my opinion, let me let's just talk about you know what's going on in other states, right? Sure. So Michigan has a system where um, it's pretty easy to get a license from the state. The difficulty is then finding a municipality that will allow you. And that's becoming harder and harder um, because there's few municipalities that are allowing licenses. Um, but up to this point, there, there are a lot more licenses in Michigan than there are in Illinois. You know, I'd say there's probably three times as many. Um, <clears throat> and the result is, is that um, there's an enormous number of just up people that are operating in a deficit. And um, there are people who are trying to unload licenses for free. You know, like you can have my license if you take on my debt. There's a lot of that in Michigan, a lot. And the other is, is that the, the amount of cannabis that's been created in the state that's, that's being you know, manufactured and grown is just way off the charts. And so prices are dropping like mad. Like, you know, you, I, I've been told stories of $700 a pound, um, which blows my mind. Because, I mean, really, if you're growing it indoor, you can't really do it for less than 1200 And you got to be really, really, really sharp in order to do it at 1200 And I'm, I'm betting a lot of these people are not that sharp in terms of their efficiency. So it means a lot of people are losing money. A lot of money. Um, and what's also interesting is, is that this was clear as long as a year ago that it was heading in that direction. And really, like if you looked at actually uh, the, um, the harvest season in 2021, it was pretty clear that it was going to happen. And yet more and more giant cultivation facilities were completed and built in Michigan. All right. Michigan. Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a very controlled license process. Um, you know, it's relatively easy. You can get a license pretty much anywhere you want, but you have to go through a, a process with the state. The state is very slow and has really constricted the number of licenses, but they allowed a lot of licenses to go through very quickly and a very similar kind of market situation is, is Michigan. Not as bad, but very similar. And you can track it almost exactly to about a year and a half ago. Um, Massachusetts, there were a lot of complaints about how fast Massachusetts was uh, allowing new licenses. And then all of a sudden they started letting in new licenses. And so now here we are. Massachusetts, also a very similar situation. You know, you can find cannabis for $800, $900 a pound. There's a lot of people losing a lot of money. Um, New Jersey. Um, so New Jersey is relatively new 
and they only really started handing out licenses this summer. Um, but it, it is a very constricted process in order to get a license. The state is taking it very slowly. And not only that, but it's very, very hard to cite a license, particularly for, for grows. It's very, very hard to find a location for a grow because towns have to approve it. There's a lot of towns that have opted out. And not only that, um, there's a, New Jersey has a very, very tight real estate market. And so it's hard to find inexpensive, good properties that will allow cannabis. I've heard stories from people that say, uh, well, you know, I want to grow. I, I have this great location and I talked to the landlord and he said, sorry, my bank's mortgage won't allow me to have cannabis. That, that I've heard that multiple times. So they have a very limited number of licenses. And hey, guess what? The price of cannabis is hovering around $3,200 a pound. And it looks like it's going to be that way for a while. It's going to be very hard for a lot of licenses to come online in New Jersey. Um, Ohio, you know, similar kind of situation, but it's just medical. Their medical is growing very slowly. I don't know if you can really compare that. I mean, adult use, I think, you know, basically if, if you're just thinking about this stuff. So, you know, what do I have to say about opening up licenses? Well, I think... If you opened up licenses in the way that they have in Michigan, you're going to get what they have, which is you're going to get a lot of licenses and there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of people who are going to rush into the market. And there's a thing called the bigger fool. It, it's a concept in, in finance, which is, you know, you want to be able to find the person who's the bigger fool than you in order to sell whatever asset that you have. And Michigan got a lot of bigger fools. And so, you know, I don't know who's making money on that, but somebody is. And in Massachusetts, they had a very constricted market, it was very limited, and then they opened it up and all of a sudden prices collapsed. And so, hey, surprise, you know, this is what happened. Um, if you look at Colorado, Colorado in 2020, uh, Colorado had a steadily increasing number of licenses very quickly. And then around 2020, there was this huge crash and, you know, something like 250, 300 licenses just got wiped off the board, never came back. And I think, you know, that Colorado, by the way, has an open license system. And I think that that is probably what you're going to see in Michigan and maybe what you're going to see in Massachusetts. There's going to be a lot of licenses that are going to go away and the market's going to go, oh, that's the limit. Okay. That, you know, no, I'm not going to create a new one. So would it benefit Illinois to open up licenses? You know, it, it would benefit some small group of people who are uh, highly thoughtful and um, extremely well-trained uh, and very diligent. And, you know, everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm that guy. Maybe not. And um, who would it not benefit? There would be a lot of people who would be left as the odd man out. And I think that, um, 
you know, one of the things that Pritzker is trying to say is, is that there's some group of people, if they're going to be successful, they need to have an opportunity to be able to build their business. Now, you know, okay, that sounds like you're protecting a group of people in order to be successful and that you're artificially raising the value of their licenses so that somebody will buy them. But the reality that we're discovering is that there's a lot of people who don't know what to do and are actually having trouble selling their licenses, even though you know there's some value because they imagine that it has some value of you know many millions but it actually is worth a lot less because it turns out that building all the stuff for a cannabis facility is a lot more expensive and troublesome and you have to unwind who it is that owns it and the state requires the the majority owner of the license to be the one who's operating it so you can't just hand it over to somebody else so I think that what's going to end up happening is that there's going to be some number of people who are going to lose their licenses and are going to get nothing. And then the state is going to recycle it. And I think that Illinois is really serious about that. Missouri had a same kind of promise and with their licenses. And there were a lot of licenses that did not get started in a year. And I kept pursuing the, the head of the Missouri uh, system. And, you know, he kept Lyndall Fraker and, and he kept saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to give people a little extra time. And he kept doing that. He gave everybody like an extra year. And so really most of the licenses, I think almost all of the licenses are operating in some way or another in, in Missouri. But I think that Illinois is serious about it. I think Illinois will take licenses back because um, they've really let a lot of people hanging. Um, you know, when will they take, I don't know. You know, I mean, will it be a year? I don't know, they'll probably give people some extra amount of time. But, you know, that's a guess. Uh, it, it also doesn't really seem like there's that much of an investor appetite for Illinois anymore. Um, you know, there's a lot more excitement about New Jersey Virginia, you know, New York has really cooled off because of the the way that the state has set up their system. And a lot of people are still trying to figure out exactly how New York's going to work. Um, you know, so Ohio, there's a lot of interest in Ohio. I think that there is renewed interest in Michigan in that there's a lot of licenses that are debt laden. And if you can get something without the debt, you know, there's a lot of potential to make money there. But, you know, I think Illinois is going to have to go through a cycle and, and we're probably not going to see where that cycle is going to go until the end of the summer. You know, we'll begin to get a sense of it earlier. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how many licenses are operating by next March, how many yeah. dispensary licenses are operating. And I don't think there's going to be that many. I don't think we're going to have a hundred new ones. I don't think we'll have 30. And, and the number of craft grows that are going to be operating is going to be even less, uh, you know, maybe, maybe half a dozen. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of processors, um, you know, cause I think there's a lot of 
potential for infused products. And that's a good way to make money. Um, but it will be interesting because the, the price of oil is really high in Illinois. You know, people are telling me $12,000, $14,000 a liter, which is shocking because in Michigan, it's down to like 4000 you know, and, and that has a lot to do with gray market and all kinds of other stuff, which may begin to impact Illinois. You know, now that you have more players, maybe we'll start to see the gray market in Illinois. I don't, you know, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with what you just described with regard to like the function of uh, the limitations on the licenses, you know, yeah. like I think their purpose is to, so that they have value, right? Right. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you candidly today, and I and I'm really asking you because I I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> Where else does the government play a role like this in limiting things? Yeah, um, banking, insurance. Banking. True. Uh, too big to uh, too, what is it called? Uh, too big to too, fail. But yeah, too but, big to fail. Yeah. But, but actually the government government plays a big role in banking and not only in terms of large banks, but they, they have made it almost impossible to open a small bank. Uh, I, have, I have a very good friend who a number of years ago tried to start a new bank, a very smart guy, had a big banking background, but it was really difficult. And the regulators, federal and state regulators have made it very difficult um, because they don't like the risk of small banks. Um, they like the idea that there's larger banks that have an existing book of business and that there's a certain amount of capital that they have. So it's very, very hard to start a new bank, um, which is good and bad. Like you can imagine there would be some interesting, interesting, it wouldn't it be cool if somebody in Illinois is able to start just a cannabis bank, you know, that would be a good thing. Um, but, you know, I think state regulators would say, oh, you know, maybe not, you know, the risk should be spread out over different things and blah, 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 you know, so in insurance, same kind of thing. Insurance is, uh, you know, similar to banking in a lot of ways in which it's about distributing risk and um, the federal government and uh, state governments have made it very hard for new insurance companies to get started. You know, most of the time when you see a new insurance project, it's a it's a thing that is connected to an existing insurance company. Um, and it, so it's not an actual, it's basically a branding exercise. Um, so, you know, I think there are a lot of things like that, that are businesses that are risk intensive and capital intensive. So utilities too, is another thing, you know, you don't see a, a brand new utility getting started. Somebody stringing wires down the street in order to start, serving you know you don't see decalb power that would be cool you know but you know so uh, i you know I, I think those are places where sure really get involved sure thank you for because again i wasn't i wasn't sure of any other uh instances in which that occurs yeah. um so you know and just another one on this note and i want to segue into to maybe what you know you've got planned in your future i know you got a blog and stuff so maybe we can plug that um <laughs> but i spoke to the head regulator of oregon cannabis uh, liquor and i can't think of what their 
regulatory body is called right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was asked about, you know, what has happened in that state, because frankly, officials from Illinois always point to Oregon. That's like, if anybody starts this conversation that I just started, they're like, look at Oregon. <laughs> and, do, uh, do they say that as a good example or a bad example? No, they say it is a bad example. Yeah. They say, yeah. look, look what happened at Oregon. The, the, yeah, pro- right. the wholesale prices hit the tank, everything you were just describing, right. you know? Right. And right. I asked the head regulator and it was interesting because he did something that no Illinois regulator ever has done with me, which is when I ask them their opinion, they say, look, this is my opinion. This is not part of my job. You know, Illinois, I, right. anytime I've ever right. talked to an Illinois regulator, they will never give me their opinion. What's your favorite color? Uh, I don't know. I, I you right. know, right. <laughs> so right. anyways, right. jokes aside, I asked him, would you have done it again? Would you have done what happened again? And he said, yes. In yeah. other words, would they have done open market? And, and yeah. his reasoning was, he would rather have people know what they're getting into and fail. Not that we wish right. financial hardship on anybody. Right. Than not have a chance at all. Right. I'm not surprised. I mean, Oregon, uh, Oregon, everyone forgets that west of the Cascades, Oregon is a super red state. And specifically, it's an extremely libertarian state. Uh, you know, it, it, it's Oklahoma. You know, I mean, it, it, it really is. And so, you know, you look at the farming community of Oregon and it's mostly those kind of people. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not surprised that that's what he said. And I'm also not surprised that he's very straight up about his opinion, because I think, you know, those kind of people, you know, tend to call bullshit pretty quickly. And so, um, he probably protects himself by saying, this is what I think, but this is what I'm going to do. And I think that probably people, a lot of people in Oregon respect that. Yeah. Uh, so one Illinois, of the- you know, you know, you can't do anything without the governor say so in Illinois and right. other states are a little different. And you don't want to give your opinion on something and then be out of lockstep with the governor. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. Maybe that's why we don't see people give me their opinion. <laughs> um, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. And the, and the governor is not really involved in cannabis policy. I mean, this, this is really a third tier problem for the governor of Illinois. Um, you know, as important as it may seem to us, you know, there's a lot of other things that are a much bigger deal for him. Yeah. Well, um, so last thought on this subject specifically, you know, um, and this is like the, the real one for me, this kind of goes from what the person from Oregon said, but also like from Michigan, like you name it, Oklahoma, you always hear the operators complain. And I'm not saying that they don't have a right to complain. You're talking about the hemorrhaging, the money just flying out the window based on the industry they're in. I get it. It's a part of the industry. But the one person you never hear complain or the one group of people you never hear complain in markets like that are the consumers getting cheap cannabis, you know? And my thing, the reason I am even addressing limited licenses, having now, I'm now aware, yes, this is indeed the function to, to artificially inflate the value of the product. Um, Like I'm still stuck on what we said this was all about, which was to end the war on drugs, to right the wrongs of history. 
And if we continue to have penalties for possession, which we do, you know, uh, of cannabis, and if we continue to, you know, enforce black market cannabis operations the way we do, like, I don't know, it, it just seems like we're talking about riding the wrongs of the war on drugs, yet many policies from the war on drugs are alive and well in mm -hmm. Illinois. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I, I think that's true. Um, I think it's complicated, though. I mean, I, I mean, it's very hard to separate the sale of illicit cannabis from the sale of illicit fentanyl and the sale of illicit cocaine. Um, you know, and I'm particularly choosing fentanyl and cocaine because they're intertwined and the opioids generally, I mean, those are things that I, those things have affected my family. I, I know what, what that is. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the, the underground market, um, will go to where the consumers are period. And the consumers are looking for certain things and they've developed, you know, new types of drugs that people are interested in. Fentanyl is a relatively new kind of drug. And, you know, consumers are into that, but the, the, the same people who are moving fentanyl are, are going to be the same people that are moving cannabis, underground cannabis. You, you can't separate those two. And I think from the perspective of law enforcement, bad guys are bad guys are bad guys. And it's hard for them to say, well, you know, for this activity, you know, we're going to, we're going to overlook it, but for this activity, we're really going to come after you. So I think that that, that's a really, really hard kind of policy thing to encounter and deal with. You know, if somebody is moving um, 500 pounds of cannabis across a border, chances are they're also moving a little bit of fentanyl and opioids at the same time, you know, um, maybe not in that shipment, maybe in a different one. And um, so I think that that is a really, really hard thing to address. And, and I don't think anybody has a good answer for it. Um, and I have deep, deep sympathy for people who are upset about um illegal drugs. I mean, again, it's impacted my family and, and, um, I don't, I don't know what to do, you know, yeah. you know, once you get into that. Um, so, uh, you know, the war on drugs is, is really problematic. I mean, I, I think that the United States is doing a lot of things wrong and that we're, I mean, if you want, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a moment. The, 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 the United States is making a big mistake in that it tries to separate the idea of sale of drugs in the United States from the production of drugs and why are the drugs being produced and why are these the circumstances? Um, and, you know, I, I have a good friend who is starting a business where he's importing mezcal from Oaxaca, Cal, um, Mexico. And so he spends a lot of time going to Oaxaca and visiting these mezcaleros, it's an awesome name. And, you know, the towns are just poor. 
poor, 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 poor. And, um, you know, the circumstances where they're making this stuff, I mean, these are the people that are better off and they're poor, um, like beyond like American standards of poor. And these are also the places where there's a lot of drug activity. And so, well, why? Well, it's because that part of Mexico is really screwed. And what else are you going to do? So I think that, you know, the idea that the United States tries to separate, well, we can ignore poverty in Southern Mexico and we could ignore poverty in Nicaragua and El Salvador and Peru. And, and we're going to say it's their problem is really sticking our head in a hole. Um, you know, you just can't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we managed to do that. And in all of our policy in the United States that we have with these countries is basically bullying them around and telling them to do things that make no sense on the ground. And everyone there in those countries know that it makes no sense, but it's just a big pile of money that comes from the United States. And so they're just like, well, I guess we're going to do what that is. And I'm going to live fat and happy and everyone else is going to be screwed. And that, and that continually happens again and again. And, you know, you know, it's, it's like a big giant dragon sitting in a cave with a big pile of money. And that would be the United States pushing everybody else around. Um, yeah, I get what you mean. Though. That's a, it's an interesting point you raise that, that if you kind of just wild west cannabis, that maybe some entrepreneurs might, you know, have other uh, substances in their cargo, let's just say. Yeah, why wouldn't um, you? I yeah. mean, you know, if, if, if you don't give a crap about the welfare of people, it's pretty easy move. Right. You know, to go from one to the other. I get, but I guess where I was, I wanted to kind of validate your point there because that's absolutely valid. But I guess where I was coming from with what I brought up and I could see how you went where you went. Um, it just seems like every provision, not every provision, but most provisions um, are meant to protect the industry, the industry and not the consumer. So for example, the fact that you can only purchase and possess limited quantities of cannabis, like who are you protecting? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. uh, the, the, the home growth thing, the fact that, you know, licensed operators and law enforcement lobbied against that, you know, what else are you wonder? What are, what else are you left to wonder than like, what are you trying to protect? Are you trying to protect me? Are you trying to protect your bottom line? And so yeah. I guess what I was asking with that question is you could see how you brought up, I think Occam's razor earlier. I don't know if this is off of that, but, but maybe you can see how people attribute malice. Is that Occam's razor attributing malice to things that might just be, or is that a different razor? Uh, that, that, that it is attributing malice to a thing that's actually incompetence. That, that's often a solution of an Occam's razor. Occam's razor is the idea the simplest solution to a problem is the likely solution. Gotcha. I was not reaching for that one then. Sorry. I was thinking of the one where people like just assume that it's a, a bad thing. You can kind right. of see how people would assume that right. there was some maneuvering right. <laughs> at play. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, so. I, I think that's true. Um, you know, but there again, you know, from a policymaking perspective, you know, Michigan's got a real issue with with caregivers, and mm -hmm. you know the the idea that um, you can grow, you know, if you have five patients plus yourself, 
12 plants per patient. You can grow 72 plants at a time. Um, and it's not, you know, the, the growers are registered, but that's it. And it goes into a database that nobody except for the cannabis re regulatory authority can see. And there's no other management. Um, that's a real problem because a lot of those people who are doing, you know, caregiving are actually also running substantial grows that are illegal. And there's a lot of substantial illegal grows in, in Michigan, um, a lot. And there, a lot of those people are using caregiver as a, as a cover. Yep. So, you know, what do you do? What do you say to somebody? You can, you can have as much home grow as you want. You know, do you say it's 20 plants? You know, what is it? What, I mean, uh, you know, I, I know there are people who smoke a lot, but you know, I'm, I'm always amazed at how rare those people are. Like, you know, I know there are people who smoke, a, how do you, how, how long does it take for you to go through a pound coal? Now that's a good question. I would say I probably smoke two ounces a month. So well, that's not a lot. No. No, I mean, Maybe I know I'm... people, I know people that get to like half a pound. Of... Hmm. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Well, I make, I feel better about myself. I wasn't playing. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's people that are smoking a pound a month. I mean, they're, they're, I mean that yeah. two ounces a month is, you know, it's a healthy habit, but I, I don't think that's a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, the, the number of people that are doing that are, are relatively few, but they have big demands and they're, they're much more vocal and they're pushing the limits of the system a lot more. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think you got to draw a line somewhere. And, and consumers, for the most part, I think are, are poorly served when prices are high. And that's the case in Illinois. Um, it's not the case in Michigan, uh, and it's not the case in places like uh, like the, the Zach Huffman story when he went to uh, um, a tribal reservation in northern New York State. You know, you could buy a pre-roll for for less than two bucks, two U.S. dollars. You know, yeah. that's that's crazy. So. I mean, can you imagine if you could buy a pre-roll for $2? Oh, I would have bought 20. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't buy 20. I'd buy one at a time whenever I felt like it. You True. know, like yeah. I could just walk into a store and, you know, it'd be great. It'd be like getting mm. a shot at the bar. Yeah. You know, it'd be terrific. It'd be cheaper than getting a shot at the bar. You know, imagine that world. I think, you know, I think that's possible, but I, I don't. You know, I think that most cannabis producers, including ones that are just getting started, don't want that world because they can't afford those kind of prices. Now, see, that that is going to be my last question on this topic. How long do you see this lasting? I mean, operators, I think at a Cranes Chicago thing said that, look, we kind of view limited licenses as a as a thing that may not always exist. And 
you know, how long can we artificially inflate the value of this substance? So I know I'm asking this one question, but really like the root of that question is, are we setting ourselves, are we setting our operators up for failure by not allowing them to see the true spirit of competition? Do you get what I'm saying there? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see the true spirit of competition because I think cannabis is going to be heavily regulated for a while. You don't think there will ever be like interstate uh, commerce, for example, like I'm worried about, for example, okay, so a social equity candidate starts up here in Illinois and they grow great weed that everybody in Illinois loves, but then interstate commerce becomes a thing. And all of a sudden Oregon is just mass importing their cannabis and we can't compete. You know, I don't, I, I don't know what happens with that. Sure. I mean, I, I anticipate that we don't see any major federal regulation for at least two to four years. Um, and when federal regulation comes, federal changes come, I think it's going to be protecting cultivators in individual states because people have invested way too much money in order to grow, set up those operations. Um, now that barrier may occur and then you're going to continue to have underground cannabis pushing that limit pushing that limit pushing that limit um you know i i could see you know hoop houses in texas and oklahoma producing enormous amounts of weed and then it being transported to somewhere else pressing the prices down so i think we're going to be dealing with this underground um legal cannabis struggle for a while and you know exactly the color of that is going to change a little bit um, but I think that, you know, you can anticipate at least five years that legal cannabis cultivation facilities are going to stay the way that they are. And, um, you know, I, I think that individual states that have legal cannabis are going to be, that have already legalized cannabis are going to be pushing Congress to make sure that they're protected. And there are, you know, going back to banking and insurance, Though there are systems like that that exist, you know, banking is heavily protected so that each state has its own system. And same with insurance. That's why you have Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois and of New Mexico. And, you know, th that's why there's all these individual insurance companies. Insights like that are huge, man. Thank you for explaining oh, that. Like, I know people are learning a lot. So, um, <laughs> well, hey, here, that, that's a perfect segue into our last last uh, topic here, because I know uh, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, what's next, dude? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, well, first of all, can you announce? I don't know if you announced it formally here. I know you've announced it, but you're not with Grown In anymore, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I left Grown In and um, the leading partner, Brad Spearson, you know, we parted amicably, you know, we're still talking to each other. Uh, I'm, I'm still a shareholder and grown in, uh, but I'm just not part of the operations and not running it anymore. And uh, Brad is working on a new strategy and a new plan. And you know, I, I think he plans to have some sort of announcement sometime in the new year. Um, but, you know, for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of time to figure that out. Um, you know, I love the cannabis industry. I think it's really interesting. I want to play a role. Um, I'm interested in some part of connecting 
um, smart operators with each other uh, and uh, helping people grow their businesses. I've spent a lot of time actually what I did, the, the whole reporting thing is, is a thing that I, I do not because it's what I aimed to do. It's because, well, Hey, can you do that? Yeah, sure. All right. You go do that. Um, you know, my, I have an MBA, my background is in operations and, and analysis and I've spent a lot of time helping people try and purchase and put together media companies. And I'd like to do similar sort of work for cannabis as well. Um, and I think I've met a lot of good operators. I think I've met a lot of bad operators. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot about their businesses and have a pretty good sense of uh, the bullshit meter. And uh, I'd love to keep doing that. So Very that's cool. what I'm, I'm working on. I, I don't really know exactly where it'll be, but you know, maybe you'll have me back on some other time when I can tell you what that is when I know. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll have you back on as Mike Fouché, cannabis consultant. <laughs> That'd be Sounds fine. Like... <laughs> That'd yeah. be fine. Uh, you know, but anyway, I think I think the cannabis industry has uh, a tremendous amount of promise, um, but I think it's still going to go through a lot of convulsions. You know, between now and whatever that endpoint is in the future. Yeah, and for folks that are listening right now. You know, it's easy for me to ask these questions. Let's just talk, let's just use home grow as an example. When prohibition uh, was no longer a thing for alcohol, it's not like people were allowed to home brew the next day. In fact, I think it took until Jimmy Carter, President Carter, before right? people, yep, before people were allowed to brew at home. So, yeah, I've done that too. Uh, I actually have a really good friend. Uh, he and I started homebrewing together and he got better and better and then quit his job and started a brewery. <laughs> and so now he has a substantial brewery in uh, North suburban Chicago. Um, so if you ever have a chance, go to Hubbard's cave in Niles, Illinois. It's fantastic. And that's how yeah. I started in my kitchen. You said Hubbard's cave. Yeah. Yeah. Hubbard's cave in Niles, Illinois folks. And before we go, I'll just show really quick on October, 14th, 1978, Jimmy Carter signed HR 1337. Wow. Huh. That, that Sponsored by Alan Cranston of all people. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it basically created oh. an exemption from taxation of beard brewed at home for personal or family use. Essentially, right. it lifted regulations imposed by prohibition over 50 years previous. Wow. That's really cool. Um, huh. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder, yeah, his brother, uh, had a, had a beer. I don't know if you, his, his, uh, so the, like the, uh, this is, I'm going to show my age. Uh, one of the things about, uh, Jimmy Carter is that he was always plagued by his brother, uh, Billy, who was like a total doofus. Okay. And then I think he had Billy beer is what it was called. And so I think that's probably connected to that. And everyone was making a joke about Billy and Billy beer and all that stuff. So I wonder if that's uh, I wonder if that he made it as part of that, the crown. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I felt like it was important to, you know, make that distinction, you know, because in some ways you could say that cannabis legalization has gone further than, you know, the prohibition of alcohol in some ways. And by that, I mean, in Illinois, we have home grow and that was right. only 
I mean, uh, five or six years after we legalized medical, which like I say, when you compare the timeline for prohibition, that's, that's a quick turnaround to give yeah. people that right. Yeah. So when you look at it from history, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Gotta love history. Well, I think that's one thing we will always uh, relate on history nerds. Um, Mike, I'd love to have you back on in the future. As always, it was a pleasure to speak to you. Um, did you want to plug your blog at the end or is that not really no. anything? Okay. No, it's, it's if people find it, they find it, you know, yeah, whatever. Find it, that's fine. Use the Google machine. Yeah. Find cool. It. Well, uh, Illinois, we hope you found value in this episode of uh, this podcast. And, um, you know, I'd tell people to look out for you on Twitter or stuff, but who knows how long that's going to be around. Um, so if you want to, <laughs> if you want to connect with Mike Fouché, just Google him. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll see how long Elon keeps that going. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here, Cole. Absolutely. Well, till next time, Mike. See Thanks. You.